cliffcentral.com. Well, cliffcentral.com on a Thursday morning means one thing and one thing only. It means the burning platform, which is brought to you by Nando's. And Nando's, we were talking about their ad just the other day for uh, Pitrambedi and for all the people, <laughs> all the people who are interested in that story about the um, the kids who were born, the supposed decuplets who were born some time ago. Some very clever advertising from Nando's there. And we're looking forward this morning to unpacking a whole lot of really Really interesting things that are going on in the news, uh, the, the stories that are occupying our minds politically, socially, and economically. And this morning is no, um, is, is, is absolutely not any different to any of the other episodes of this, except that we've got two really amazing guests. Uh, one of them a return champion and someone who we are very happy to have back. Uh, Canton Pele, it's good to see you, Canton. How are you? Morning, guys. Yes, very I'm good. Fabulous. I'm very pleased to hear Hello, it. Hello, Canton. Don't we have a birthday? Hello, we have a birthday coming up soon, don't we, Canton? We do have a birthday coming up soon, and it's a big 6-0. Ooh, big 6-0. Wow. Nice. Things to celebrate. Well, I mean, with your... Are with, you going to have... Go on, Pums. Are you going to have a, a big, like, lockdown-breaking, lockdown rules-breaking party? Like well, a certain I'm, MEC. Well, no, I'm only immediate, uh, inviting my immediate family, which means I've got about 600 people. <laughs> <laughs> Don't doubt it for a second. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a big one to celebrate, though. But the, the silver hair has been there for some time, so you can't even claim that that's novel. Yeah, I've had the silver hair since my 20s, actually. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of increased in volume since then. Right. Well, we're going to be joined in a moment which by... Which is good hair for a 60-year-old. It's very good hair. You know, let's not go down that route, Pooley, because if I start saying similar things in your direction, then I'll be accused of rampant sexism and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. And uh, we will get to our other guest this morning in a moment. He's just busy sorting out his uh, microphone, and we're going to find out what's going on over there with him in a moment. But he's brought, uh, he's brought to the market a brand new book, which is called A Pretoria Boy. So I have this in common with our guest. I'm also a Pretoria boy, and I suppose you could also say people like Elon Musk are. And what we all have in common is it's very difficult to figure that out. But we, we all sort of have a bit of a rebellious streak. And this guy has a huge rebellious streak because he started looking for trouble at an early age, and trouble found him. He is Peter Hain. Lord Peter Hain, how are you? Good, thanks very much. Nice to talk to you again, Jeremy. Nice, nice to see. You. Nice to see you too. Um, it, it's uh, it's good to have you on the show this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about your book in a moment, but we'll also get to all the stuff that I know that you're more interested in than most people who live in the UK, and that is South Africa and South African politics and the uh, ongoing mess within the ANC. Our elections are supposedly coming up. There are so many things we can get it, get into. But um, why why have you brought out this book? Because I think your story is quite well known to many of us. Is this the earlier years, the stuff that we don't know, Peter? Well, I've not had a book published in South Africa before about my story. And when Jonathan Ball discussed it with me, they thought they'd be interested in it, which starts off uh, with the um, exposing the money laundering and the complicity of the international corporations in Mm -hmm. the Zuma-Gupta looting. Uh, then goes back to the beginning of my childhood and so on. So somebody like you, Gareth, who's, uh, who's delved into my background, perhaps it is familiar, but I think to a lot of people it's completely new, uh, whether it is anti-apartheid activism, 
in London after my family was forced into going into exile in the 1960s, receiving a letter bomb and things like that, of the sort that security forces assassinated um, anti-apartheid leaders across the world with. Mm. Uh, I think probably there will be a lot new in it, and certainly um, sure. people have been very kind uh, in giving a verdict uh, if they've read it. Oh, absolutely. And I would recommend uh, to anybody, not just people who are interested in you, but also people who are interested in the history of this country. I mean, you you go into your involvement um, in, in the House of Lords and what you've done to try and expose the laundering, the money laundering, the corruption in the Jacob Zuma administration, which is recent history. Um, you know, the, the the stuff that you've you've been doing uh, across the the, uh, the the seas and across the rest of Africa to make sure that South Africa remains top of mind in the UK and and uh, there are also some lovely pictures in here I saw a picture of you with Madiba you with um, Ahmed Katrada there's also a lovely picture of you standing in front of your old school in Pretoria yeah yeah that's good stuff yes well there's all of that but um, I, I suppose the motivation for it was that. When I did, at the request of Pravin Gordon uh, and other senior ANC figures in the run-up to the conference at the end of 2017, when mm-hmm. uh, former President Zuma was hoping to continue his dynasty with his favoured candidates and Cyril Ramaphosa was challenging him, they wanted uh, the story that had become well-known inside South Africa after brave investigative journalists had exposed it of the looting and the, the corruption under Zuma and the Gupta brothers. They wanted the international dimension to it exposed. And that's where I was able to help, and they asked me to do it. And uh, I described my, my source or sources as a deep throat who, right. inside the Zuma state, who gave me a lot of, well, gave me all of the information that I used under parliamentary privilege. But the important point about it was that up until that point, it had been a story confined largely to South Africa, mm-hmm. well-known inside South Africa. Right. But suddenly, uh, it was on the front pages of the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post when I exposed it in, under parliamentary privilege. So that caused the corporates involved, HSBC Bank, Standard Chartered, Bank of Broda, the McKinsey's, the KPMG's and the rest of them, who would basically be getting the fat fees and helping with the money laundering and yep. the, the corruption. Suddenly they felt the heat and their bosses flew over from uh, New York and so on to meet me and my office in the House of Lords asked to see me. Uh, and I suppose that was the that, that was what that achieved. Um, but suddenly, you know, I found my name up in lights in the South African media. And I think a lot of people, particularly those not necessarily well-read like you, Jeremy, but those perhaps under 60 yeah. <laughs> suddenly thought, what's this British Lord, uh, what's he on about? Right. Uh, uh, and so really the purpose of the book was to say, actually, this British Lord um, was a Pretoria boy and this is his story. And it, no, I, I, I you, think... I think maybe it's it's right that your name is, is, is as well known as it is in South Africa. I certainly hope people will read the book to find out more about your actual story. But the, the, the whole the exposure which you um, which you gave to the story internationally and in the corporate world 
is ongoing. I mean, we, we, you know, this chapter is not closed yet, and we are still seeing lots of information coming to the fore. And, and the, you know, South Africa kind of owes you a debt of gratitude for that because this may have remained a small local story, and the Guptas may have been unknown to the rest of the world if it wasn't for some of your efforts there. So I think we, we, we owe you a debt of gratitude for that, and I'm, I'm pleased to have you on the show this morning. Thank you very much. Um, so we're going we're gonna to get straight into it. Uh, Pumi, Canton, Peter, let's see what we can figure out about where we are at the moment, because there is quite a lot going on. I saw um, just the other day that uh, Jacob Zuma, who we've just mentioned, uh, is, is refusing to let the doctors come and examine him. He's too sick, and he says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to cooperate. Now, isn't there already a mechanism in South African law by which we don't need you to be present in your own trial? Isn't there a way we can try you in absentia for the things that you are charged with, even if you want to be as uncooperative as possible? Well, I think that we can take a view that in these COVID times, Gareth, (laughs) we've got a scenario where we can plonk down a computer in Jacob Zuma's hospital ward Mm-hmm. and just ensure that he's part of the trial, whether he wants to be physically present or not. Yeah, and, and he, does, he doesn't... Surely, surely, there, surely there's precedent for it. Now, second point that I want to make in terms of the question of whether or not one can actually force Jacob Zuma to take a medical examination, I think there's a very interesting precedent that came out from a case some years ago that um, uh, in the Western Cape High Court that was presided over by uh, Judge Siraj Desai, mm-hmm. where there was a person who was a, a suspect um, in, uh, in a criminal case that involved shooting. And the way in which he could be identified is if a bullet that was lodged in his leg was actually extricated and they were able to run ballistic tests on it to show that he was in fact present at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. And he refused to do so on the grounds that it was going to endanger his health. And in that particular scenario, uh, Judge Desai uh, basically issued an order that the bullet will be removed because there's not going to be a threat to, <laughs> uh, uh, to, uh, to his health. And he instructed uh, the police to execute that order within 24 hours. And uh, so, uh, but gave him uh, him time to appeal, but the order had to be executed immediately. And yes, the bullet was extricated. Mm-hmm. Ballistic tests were run on the bullet, and yes, it was shown that he was in fact the criminal that was present at the crime scene. And uh, the rest is history. Now, would so it be, I think would use, it be great if we, could, if we could find if we could find some singular piece of evidence that would just close this case and show us for once and for all that Jacob Zuma is the guy at the centre of all this mess that we've been in <laughs> for the last twenty years? Wouldn't yes, that be indeed. wonderful? Pums, Pumi, Pumi is a Zuma fan. Come on, tell us. Yeah. You, you know what, guys? I, I think there are no surprises there. There are no surprises that. He's found yet another reason to not show up, not have his day in court. He's found yet another reason that he can then stand up and say, so even if you put all the measures in place that Canton speaks about, right, even if there's an order that says he has to be examined, that you put a computer in front of his face, all of that, it doesn't make a great story, right? It doesn't further his story that says, I've not been given my opportunity to defend myself. Mm. I am not, you know, it gives us, gives everybody an opportunity to say, when Zen Zuma? Like, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised in even talking about this? But 
you know, I have, I'm very fascinated though at, at Peter's story about how complicit international business and big business and banks in particular have mm-hmm. been in, in getting the money out of South Africa, in, in allowing the transactions, not just for the Guptas, but for many, many other people. Well, maybe, maybe, that I'm very maybe Peter, that you could give us some details on this because I know that, that, you know, parliamentary privilege doesn't really uh, come into play on this show, but there are things that you probably can tell us about Jacob Zuma. We heard from his spokesperson, uh, Mzwanele Mani, this week that he has no money ferreted away. He's, he's a poor man who's now asking the rest of South Africa to please donate to help him cover the costs of his legal fees. Uh, although he has sons and daughters who are supposedly uh, multi-millionaires, uh, they don't seem to be at the front of the queue um, donating money. He's asking ordinary, hard-working South Africans to donate money. How difficult is it for people who've been involved in corruption in a country like ours to hide their money internationally? And, and who are the bad guys here, the banks that help them hide it? Well, Gareth, it's not just the banks. It's not just HSBC, Standard Chartered Bank of Baroda, which were the principal conduits for the money laundering. And we're talking about billions of rons. Hmm. The figures are, are in my book uh, and in the evidence I gave to the Zondo Commission and I think are, are well known. Mm-hmm. It's not just billions of rons, um, but it went out through, say, take HSBC. BC. So they have a Johannesburg uh, office and series of offices. Then there's a digital pipeline from their office that goes to Dubai and Hong Kong and London in the main, right. which is where the money went. But then what then happens is that a series of shell companies are set up, front companies, uh, which the Guptas stand behind them and the Zoomers stand behind them, but their names are not on the kind of nameplate as it were, but they're completely fictitious companies. Yeah, uh, And... So the money is sent there, then it's passed on to another one, and it keeps going. Now, the banks, what it does do is leave a digital footprint. Right. So if the banks were really determined to track it down, they could do so. It would be hard because you've then got a whole series of other actors. You've got the lawyers who set up these companies. You've got the accountants who manipulate it. You've got the auditors, some of them big names like KPMG. You've got the consultants who organize all of this, like McKinsey. Uh, and you've then got state agents who buy property and launder the money that way. For example, the Guptas have a prestigious uh, property in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And then you've got governments, Indian government, the British government, um, uh, the Chinese government in respect of Hong Kong, the Hong Kong authorities, the UAE, the Dubai uh, ruler. They're all complicit as well because they haven't done anything about recovering this lucid money right but, but you know so so what you have uh, is a whole lot of international axes um agencies banks businesses so-called professional enablers the consultants the estate agents the lawyers and so on the auditors that that they're the ones earning fat fees from all of this which is taxpayers money your taxpayers right. money correct after all. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's the broader picture to it all. So, I mean, there's really there, there are two levels to this corruption, and you almost have to admire uh, begrudgingly the fact that it takes quite a lot of architecture to make these things happen. You know, it's it's not it's not easy. It's not like robbing a bank. 
Um, robbing a bank would be much simpler than this. There's first of all the corruption itself. You have to get the money from state-owned entities, from the taxpayer directly, from Treasury, wherever you manage to steal it from. And you have to gain control of the, of the wheels of power. And then you have to also make an entire system outside of that that can help you hide the money. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very complex thing to do. And something that people, it irritates me when people say, oh, you know, Jacob Zuma and the Guptas are just, you know, common or garden thieves. They're really not. These are very, very smart, very, very um, technologically advanced uh, creations, uh, the, these, these vehicles that they use. And there are lots and lots of people involved along the way. So it's, you know, it's always easy to hide a body if you're the only one who knows where it is. But there are a lot of people who could be implicated here. How do we go after them, Peter? Well, you can only do, as I've concluded, if you get governments across the world to prioritize it. When over two billion, sorry, over two trillion, mm-hmm. uh, two trillion dollars, US dollars, is laundered in financial crime every year. Yes. So we're not just talking about the the South African state capture episode with all its scandalous uh, looting and so on. We're talking about this is going on all the time. And it is not just about uh, the Zoomers and the Guptas in the South African case doing their looting and their money laundering. Drug traffickers use the same um, conduits, financial conduits. People traffickers do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terrorists do. Uh, What is interesting is some of these same methods uh, of money laundering have been used by Al-Shabaab and uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and uh, and so on. So it's, it's, it's organized crime on a global scale. And the thing that really struck me, and I didn't really understand this until I started getting in, involved, and particularly since I had some expert advice before I gave my evidence to the Zondo Commission, is that this is extremely complex in one in a one sense, and it's actually quite simple in another, and it's happening all the time, and these very respectable, some of them household names across the world, of these global corporates, uh, they're up to their necks in us. And when I, when I actually, when these guys came to see me in, <laughs> in, my, in my office in Westminster, um, because they were very worried about their, their reputation, I mean, they didn't mind if they were being criticized in Johannesburg, but once they were criticized at their headquarters in, in New York and, and in London, they started getting concerned about their share prices and, and their reputations globally. Uh, and then I said to the banks, well, you know, you, you, you've admitted you've had the Gupta accounts. You say you've yes. closed them down now. Well, why don't you participate? Why don't you collaborate with the South African Treasury, with any of us trying to uncover any of this? And they've been, you know, Andrew Feinstein and others have been delving into this uh, uh, from, from London in gr- much greater detail, uh, with much f- more forensic expertise than I could ever muster on, on my own. Uh, why don't you cooperate? Because you, you are, are, they said, but client confidentiality. Oh, please. So, I mean, my point is the four of us on this program, uh, 
we're all honest citizens, or, yeah. or hope we are. We're right. entitled to claim. Well, I don't know. I mean, put, put me in. Uh, put me in. Canton have got very shady backgrounds. So uh, wait, wait, till, wait till their books come out. When put me in Canton's books come out, they won't be called uh, the story of South Africa's public enemy number one. It'll be South Africa's public enemy number two and three. So, so uh, that, that's very unfair. But my point is, we're entitled to claim confidentiality. But you know, big yeah. international criminals like they these guys surely are not. Yeah, they shouldn't be. So, is is any of you going to be helping to raise funds for Jacob Zuma's legal defense? I mean, come on, you're all capable people. You seem like you're conscientious. You seem like you're also caring. Doesn't our former president? He's almost eighty years old. Doesn't he deserve a little bit of cash to help pay for his legal fees? I saw someone make an interesting proposition, <laughs> and uh, I apologize for not giving credit to the person because I didn't take note at the time. The idea is to make a cash deposit into Zuma's account that is small enough that the amount that he pays in bank fees for the cash transaction is going to be more than the amount of money one deposits into the account. <laughs> and then he ends up with even more debt. <laughs> exactly. Not very nice. Well, there, there are many crowdfunding initiatives currently happening. Mm-hmm. So it's either you, you're believing in Zwane Lemanye and crowdfunding for Baba's um, legal fees or your crowdfunding for the ANC's salary bill. I mean, there's so many ways well, one can... Yes, can, can, can we talk about the ANC salary bill? Absolutely. Because, uh, Let's get into this. This is question, hilarious. question that I, was, uh, that I was putting out yesterday, and it, it, it's kind of interesting to see how these things come out, because uh, I asked people on, on Twitter for specific examples of how Jacob Zuma is a better president than Cyril Ramaphosa. And, and of course, I, I have the usual praise singers from both sides climbing in. Uh, up there, of course, those saying, well, you know, Ramaphosa is not corrupt and, uh, uh, you know, Jacob Zuma is clearly corrupt and, uh, and, and so forth. The fundamental issue for me is that Sir Ramaphosa is head of the ANC. He is the president of the African National Congress. Now, the African National Congress is not able to pay its own salary bill. Cyril Ramaphosa is an actual billionaire. Now, surely Cyril Ramaphosa has enough smarts to understand that the thing that he does as leader of this organization is to actually whip them into shape, give them a loan to cover their expenses in the short term, but keep this entire mess out of the public eye. But this guy completely lacks any sense of understanding that the correct thing to do is to keep his own house in order first. This is the equivalent of all of these guys you see outed on Twitter all the time who are spending massive amounts of money on car payments and mm-hmm. on junkets um, uh, for expensive weekends, but they're not able to pay their puck health. Yeah, 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 their maintenance of their and children. And this is yeah. Cyril Ramaphosa correct. in a nutshell. And anyone who thinks that this man has the leadership capability to actually run the country, they are completely around the bend. Leaders eat last. You know, this is another uh, uh, saying from a South African, a former South African, as in uh, uh, Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. Leaders eat last. He should first be (laughs) sorting out his entire own flipping organization. I... I'm so utterly disgusted by well, this guy. Well, uh, apparently, you know? apparently, it's not it's, just well, it's not just financial problems because the ANC couldn't even get their party list in properly the other day. They've they've missed out on a whole number of deadlines, and we're actually going to challenge the entire electoral process and have the elections postponed because of their own incompetence in submitting their own list for the election that's coming up, the municipal and local elections, which are just around the corner. Pums, what did you want to say? I interrupted you. 
I'm just saying, so both those things for, for me are incredibly interesting to watch as I've been saying for months now on the show that this is, this is the end, right? This is the beginning of the end for this party. And I'm again going to have to direct this question to, to Lord Hayne here to say, your parents were in the Liberal Party of South Africa, a party that no longer exists. So you have seen a party die. Is this, are these some of the signs of how a party's hmm. demise comes about? Yeah. Well, I think the ANC will die unless it completely reforms itself and it goes back to its original mission, its noble mission, which was to overthrow apartheid and to establish a constitutional democracy. And to be fair, the South Africa's constitution, probably the best in the world, uh, is the creature of Oliver Tambo, the leader of the ANC for all those decades when Mandela was in prison. Uh, and Albie Sachs, and uh, in in the main, uh, and and they, you know, that was a noble party with a noble mission, but it's become corrupted, and become dysfunctional. Uh, I don't agree with um, uh, with what's just been said about Cyril Ramaphosa. By the way, I think South Africa is lucky to have him. Uh, I don't see anybody who rivals him for his experience, his skills, whether as a, a you know, a struggle hero, as a trade union negotiator and leader, as a business leader, as a constitutional negotiator. He was the one uh, on behalf of Nelson Mandela and the leadership who did uh, negotiate the transition and the new constitution. So I think you're very lucky to have him, quite frankly, uh, though he's hemmed in by some bad guys and girls uh, because, of course, his victory over the Zuma rights was very narrow. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect. I, I don't like a lot of the things that are going on that more than any of us do. But um, I think you're very lucky to have him. But to answer your question about the future of the ANC, I think it will die. All parties, no party has a God-given right to rule forever or to be in existence forever. Well, the it ANC, <laughs> there, there were a couple of people in the ANC who actually did claim exactly that not so long ago, uh, that the ANC will be here until Jesus comes, were their exact words. But Peter, you, <laughs> you've said something, which, you, you've said something which, which shouldn't be controversial, that maybe Cyril's the best of a, ver a really bad bunch of politicians available to us. But this is quite controversial in South Africa at the moment, because a lot of the things that you said about Cyril are kind of ancient history. Uh, you know, there's a there's a there's a leadership vacuum at the moment that many of us are dealing with on a day to day basis. And I know you pay attention, so I don't mean to sound uh, in any way patronizing or rude about this. But there are things that he's just not doing, and he's had so many opportunities here to grab the reins with both hands and to even to use coronavirus, frankly, as an excuse to do some of the, the things that he's needed to do for the longest time. And he just never takes them. We had a cabinet reshuffle the other day where he just moved around the deck chairs and the Titanic and put the same old, same old people that have been in the ANC hierarchy for since Mandela's time. Uh, he just moved them around into new departments. And it's done nothing to improve service delivery for poor people, infrastructure, uh, in this case, the, 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 the vaccine rollout, the, the, the health minister himself was implicated in corruption and is now apparently going to be looked into by the special investigations unit and by the law. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there, are, there are various court cases pending against him. So there are things going on at the moment that do poor old Cyril very little good in terms of PR. And I know Pumi disagrees with you because she doesn't tread lightly around Cyril Ramaphosa. I mean, Canton, Pumi, did I leave 
some things out there? Well, I think the recent example of the past couple of days, Gareth, is the, is uh, is something significant in this case, which is his former spokesperson, Kusela Diko. Mm. Now, Kusela Diko was finally suspended after much public outrage over the fact that her husband had been awarded a, um, uh, a, a dodgy contract. Yeah. And... She was uh, she was suspended on full pay, I must say, for uh, for the past period, and now um, uh, we've been told that the investigation is over and she's going to be deployed into another position. And it turns out that the other position, according to reports that are out this morning, is going to be as deputy director general at Government Communications and Information <laughs> um, System. Yeah. So once again, this is a, a scenario where you have uh, patent involvement in, uh, in criminality and our president fails to act. And in fact, he ends up rewarding the person. We have a similar scenario in terms of the recent um, uh, cabinet uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic with uh, Tandi Modise now being moved into defense, um, uh, uh, into defense and Nosibiwe Mapisa and Kakula being moved to, uh, to speaker. Mm. You know, how completely outrageous is this? You, you essentially fire... Uh, the woman from cabinet for incompetence and then promptly put her into a position that's paying her even more money. Mm. And this has been a hallmark of Cyril Ramaphosa's entire tenure. And I'm not prepared to accept a, anything that says that he's forced to do this because of internal ructions within the ANC. No, the thing that he needs to do is to actually be presidential. And being presidential means firing the lot from the cabinet, depriving them of their ability to uh, to be funded by the, the state, appoint competent people to cabinet, and treat himself as a one-term president who's actually going to completely clean up the rot that is in government. And he's failing to do it. And the reason why he's failing to do it is because the ANC will always, always put the party before the country. And, and not, e not even the party, because we can see the ANC's, the party's breaking down, but even individuals in the party who are considered loyal cadres. Those are the people who get preferential treatment. It's not even the party, because there are lots and lots of members of the ANC all over who've never benefited personally from anything and never will, because they're not connected to the right people. Pums? But what we haven't heard is why you believe South Africa is lucky to have Sarah Ramaphosa as a president. And we hear that statement, but the why is what I'm interested in hearing. Think I could have him. I'm, at so, this I'm point sorry. In time. I'm sorry, Peter, to have put you in the position where you become Cyril Ramaphosa's cheerleader this morning. That was not my intention. But but can you answer Pumi's question? Why are we lucky to have him? <laughs> well, it's not my part of my responsibility to act as a cheerleader for anybody at the top of South African politics. I'm simply telling it as I see it. Okay. Uh, mm. It was only one person, and that was because of the ANC's internal politics, likely to defeat the Zuma machine, and that was Ramaphosa. There's nobody else going to do it. So you have to make a choice. Was, uh, were, you, were you going to support him or, or, or more of the same? And I think what we have seen, far too slowly, far too frustratingly um, uh, slowly, uh, is is change happening? People are being arrested who would never have been arrested before. 
institutions, whether it's the revenue service or the police, are slowly be beginning, or the National Prosecution Authority, beginning to be cleaned up. This is a long, hard slog. And it is frustratingly slow. I mean, I, I refer to this in the last chapter of my book, where I offer some thoughts uh, from my perspective. Um, I'm become only one opinion amongst all of you uh, on this program and anybody watching or listening. But um, uh, I, I'm, I'm frustrated as well about the slowness of the change because South Africa desperately needs right. shaking out of where it's been to to move forward. And there is a lack of capacity around the presidency and a lack of delivery around um, the government. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a government minister. I know how difficult it is actually to do things. It may sound odd uh, to the rest of you for me to say that, but it is true even in a in a country like, like Britain, which doesn't have the apartheid legacy, has a longer institutionalized professional civil service and, and so on. It's difficult to make change. Right. And I think Ramaphosa is grappling with that. But, you know, for me to, I think, South Africa is lucky to have him because the alternative was massively worse. I think we can all agree with so that. In other words, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. Mm. That's kind of what. No, we're no, no. no I, that's not. That's not. That's not my argument, and that's a misrepresentation of what I'm saying, Gareth. As you well know, because you're laughing like hell at me. No, no, no. <laughs> but, um, uh, Gareth, no, I've, I've got to say, I've got to say I, that, that that I agree to a large extent with with most of the stuff that uh, that uh, Peter Hannes said. We've spoken about that on this show before, in terms mm. of the capacity of the National Prosecution Authority, for example, to actually implement change, based on the fact that the entire structure was filled with uh, Jacob Zuma deployees, yes. and there had to be a process where those people actually rooted out. We have entire structures of government where the directors general of, of the various departments, again, are Azuma deployees who are in a position to actually completely obstruct the ability to uh, to put in place those. And yes, I, I agree uh, that uh, that the change process is slow. Yeah. But this doesn't detract from the fact that one of the biggest reasons why the change process is slow is because of failure of leadership on the part of the president to actually act when there is opportunity to actually do so. One of the things that um, hasn't actually been spoken about enough was the abrupt departure of Tito Mboweni uh, from the cabinet. And there have been hints uh, uh, by Tito Mboweni in terms of his uh, Twitter feed for some months now that uh, he was having major conflicts in terms of the, uh, uh, the Ramaphosa um, administration and being able to to do a couple of things the one of is of course is to enforce the fiscal discipline that he believes in and he does believe in the fiscal discipline right. because whenever any of the other ministers came around and they said we need money for x y and z he said no you can't mm -hmm. have it because we're not going to borrow more money to uh, to fund this but i'd also like to uh, you know take us back um, a, a couple of years when um, so th this was in uh, in fact, it was roughly on this date two years ago when uh, Tito Mboweni released a, a document from National Treasury called Economic Transformation, Inclusive Growth and Competitiveness mm -hmm. Towards an Economic Strategy for South Africa. And I'm just going to touch on a couple of points very quickly, you know, just bullet points in terms of what he wanted to put in place. 
Right. This was two years ago. He said government should have exemptions for small business in bargaining council agreements. Did not happen. Encourage immigration from skilled workers with tertiary qualifications from accredited institutions. Did not happen. Metro rail should be handed to the metros as part of an integrated transport plan. Did not happen. Transnet should become a rail infrastructure provider, but private companies should have access to their network. Did not happen. Substantial reforms in electricity generation and delivery. Well, effectively, what we've got there are the Turkish power ships up until now. Mm-hmm. Okay, ending of supermarket monopolies. And this is in terms of the fact that if, uh, for example, pick and pay is an anchor tenant in a supermarket, checkers is not allowed to be in the same uh, supermarket. Structures for pricing of fuel needs to change. All of these things. Good ideas, all of them. All all of them good ideas, and I think all of which are things that we've spoken about on the show before, Mm -hmm. can immediately kickstart the South African economy. Cyril has been sitting on this for two years. He's had opportunity. It's worse than that, isn't it? I mean, when it was released by Tito, there was a widespread uh, disenchantment in in the rest of cabinet and and the, the ANC at large. They said that this is not what we believe and this is not a good plan and we don't like this. That's absolutely right. And, and really at that stage, Ramaphosa could have actually exercised leadership to say that, you know, as the ANC, we believe that these things actually need to be discussed okay. and aired in public as opposed to be, uh, to be held uh, behind the scene. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, yes, absolutely right. Ramaphosa is the best of, uh, of a bad lot right now. But in fact, that is an obstacle to the people of this country actually being able to see just what a poisonous institution the African National Congress actually is. They are committed to the concept of the National Democratic uh, Revolution. They have no commitment right now in terms of any values of a traditional liberal democracy. Their role model happens to be the Chinese Communist Party. That is exactly the type of structure that they want to impose upon this country. And frankly, I think that if you had someone like Nkosazana Tlaminizuma actually holding the of government, it would be far easier for the people of this country to see the ANC for what it is. Ramaphosa has a beautiful speaking voice, and that means that it allows that folk tongue of his to actually inflict <laughs> far more damage behind the scene. All right. So I, it would be remiss of me. I'm going to give you both the right to, to reply to what, what Canton just said now, even though it wasn't about anything controversial that you've brought up necessarily or counterposed to any of that. But I do want to get into some international stuff. So anything anything left on South Africa that you'd like to say? Pumi, uh, Peter Hain? I'm going to let Peter go first. Oh, okay. So I think it'll be fascinating to see the what happens with the elections. You know, it's one of my favorite things is looking at the numbers and the turnouts. And with the ANC, I think they said that they're not contested. They haven't put in their list for about a third of the municipalities. Wow. That means, and, and we've got new players. We had... Um, we had Mr. Mashaba here last yes, week. It's going to be fascinating to see. It's going to be fascinating to see if people do actually show up to vote um, and how they tend to vote. And in places where the ANC is not even there on the ballot, how people show up to vote in those places is going to be a real interesting thing to look at to see how people are reacting to the, the shambles that is the ANC and it will give us a little bit of an indication of what we can look for in 2024. Hmm. Just to just to 
my observation is you've got not only a dysfunctional ANC, you've actually got a dysfunctional opposition. And um, governments, and I've been in government, and I've lost, an, I've been part of a losing Labour government in 2010 after 13 years of actually successful government, but we lost in 2010 for all sorts of reasons. You've got to be kept true by being, by facing the threat of losing. Yeah. And, and the longer parties are in power, and we've seen this so terribly in Zimbabwe, but you could see it elsewhere as well. Putin in Russia at the moment, for example, the yeah. Chinese Communist Party. Um, the longer you're in power, the more complacent you get, the more corruption occurs, the more um, you, you know, you, you're not kept on your mettle. Democracy is a great instrument for keeping people accountable. It's very imperfect, and uh, you know the Brexit vote, for example, I thought was disastrous for Britain. So, democracy can produce all sorts of of, uh, uh, of undesirable outcomes, but it is the best um, of of the options. But you know, you don't have a, a functioning opposition in South Africa of any serious or credible kind. There was one. Uh, the DA looked in around up to 2017 when a lot of municipal elections and city elections went against the ANC. It looked as if at last the ANC was a, was being made accountable. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see that happening. What I worry about is, for me, you, 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 you implied this, declining turnout as there's greater and greater disillusionment with the whole of politics, right. but a splintering of opposition, uh, which is not a healthy thing, because it means there's no one party that can genuinely displace the ruling party. Correct. And the whole sort of system limping along in a dysfunctional way. Uh, unless there's a big shakeup in the ANC, I think that's more likely. I don't see the DA providing credible opposition. I certainly don't think the EFF will or, or, or should uh, command support. I don't see it winning any sort of serious support. Um, because of its authoritarianism and its populism and all the corruption around this and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but, but so that's what my main concern is. In brief, uh, Gareth, I, I think I think that's finding uh, turnout, splintering opposition, and politics sort of just gradually atrophying in, in the country, and that's not healthy. Well, let's hope for the high road rather than the one last mentioned. Um, thank you. Thank you all for those those comments on, on the local situation. If we can just turn our attention to the big world story at the moment, the, the U.S. has finally completed its, um, its withdrawal from Afghanistan, and I know that all three of you are also very much au fait with what's going on in the world of politics. How does this reflect on the United States, their position in the world going forward, uh, foreign policy in the future, uh, Joe Biden's presidency and the fact that his poll numbers are dropping precipitously since his decision to uh, withdraw from Afghanistan. So what comments do we have on this? Uh, Pums, do you want to start and then, and then I'll let the gentleman go first, uh, go after you, sorry. Uh, no, I don't want to start because <laughs> you know my stance on this. No, because you do know my stance on this and I think oh, the, the listeners have have heard it before. I think it, it would be of much value for us to hear Lord Peter Hayne sure. as an, an international right. player as well. First. Okay. What do, you, what do you have to say about Afghanistan, Lord Hayne? Well, um, Gareth, first of all, let's go back to the beginning. I was in government. I was part of the government. I was actually in the British um, Foreign Office. 
when uh, the invasion, when 9-11 happened right. and the invasion took place to try and get rid of um, Al-Qaeda and stop anything like 9-11 happening again. That was the, the motivation at the time. But actually, in retrospect, what then, first of all, Afghanistan has never accepted foreign invaders. Going back to the British uh, in, in the 19th century, the Russians, the Soviets uh, in the 1970s. Graveyard uh, of empires. Yeah, driven out of Afghanistan. So I don't think in retrospect there was any prospect of this mission, 20-year mission, ending in a, a tidy way, if I could use that phrase. Sure. Um, I think we can all criticize the, the, the Biden administration, the uh, British administration, which was, you know, in lockstep with with the U.S. on, on all of this uh, and, you know, other others involved, France, etc. can all criticize the, the manner of withdrawal, the desperate uh, plight of Afghans who are now facing persecution by the Taliban. The, the 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 really concerning future for women in Afghanistan. One of the successes of the last two decades was the op opportunities for women that um, now look like being closed down, mm -hmm. tragically. So, but I think in retrospect, what should have happened was a much more surgical approach to eradicate Al Qaeda. They couldn't be left there. Uh, it, 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 to, to allow that to happen was simply to invite more 9-11s anywhere in the world. Um, so that had to be dealt with. I think it could have been done in retrospect in a more surgical fashion rather than whole-scale invasion. There was never an attempt to really negotiate with the Pashtun who formed the largest group in, uh, in Afghanistan, which is itself quite a fragmented society, or with the Taliban. The Taliban, as we've seen now, um, odious though a lot of their policies and reactionary they are towards um, human rights, and particularly towards women's rights, mm -hmm. um, they represent, you know, a great big constituency in, right. in, in Afghanistan. And instead of just shunning them and deeming them as terrorists and, uh, and cold-shouldering them and putting, you know, attracting forces of the Afghanistan were sympathetic to, to Washington and, and to Western policy. Um, and that's failed. It should have you been trying from the beginning uh, you, you, to negotiate with them and, and treat them with some uh, respect that they deserve, whether or not you agree with them. I, I, you know, just one final point on this. Tony Blair's former chief of staff, with whom I worked very closely when I was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and negotiated the 2007 peace settlement that brought the bitter old blood enemies into sharing government together. Jonathan Powell wrote a book called Talking to Terrorists. And he said, in the end, you don't resolve wars, you don't resolve conflicts by continuing to fight. In the end, there's always a negotiated solution. And we see this in Colombia, we've seen this in the Basque country, in Spain, all across the world. Right. Um, and I think that lesson in retrospect should have been learned from the beginning. Well, uh, and it was never going to be easy for Biden or the British or anybody to get out of Afghanistan in a tidy way. But surely the, the argument that this, this could have been a more surgical and more well thought through plan to just 
extirpate Al-Qaeda and, and to otherwise leave Afghanistan to its own devices and not necessarily make it an imperial project. That's a very good point that I don't think anyone's going to disagree with. But then the same logic should be applied to the withdrawal. It should have been a more strategic, more well thought through plan. And, you know, Joe Biden's saying at the moment, well, Donald Trump put certain timelines in place. It's never stopped any previous administration from overturning the bad decisions of their predecessor. And maybe this could have been handled better, you know, to withdraw the army first and then leave civilians to be to be pulled out and then pretend that this is a great decision when you've had to send more troops in than you already had there in order to oversee the the, the withdrawal. It seems like it was very much horse before the cart before the horse rather than horse before the cart here. I mean, what do you think, Canton? I think that the outrage that we're currently seeing around the entire uh, Afghanistan debacle is going to be forgotten by the time the next U.S. presidential election comes around. So hmm. from that point of view, the net impact in terms of Joe Biden I think is going to be non-existent. We have short memories in terms of politics, wow. and I don't think it's going to uh, affect his administration um, uh, in the long term. What I find significant about what's going on right now is that I think that there's going to be a fairly drastic realignment in terms of a number of people who have worked on the assumption that the United States would be there as a bulwark against other forces. So, for example, Taiwan, for example, if, if right now, if I, if I was in the Taiwanese leadership, I would be incredibly nervous. Mm. Um, Israel is another example. You know, no matter the historical alliance between Israel and the United States, I'm pretty sure right now that the Israelis are actually quite nervous about what Biden is up to. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see the, the Bennett government actually falling and again being replaced by a Netanyahu government, just simply based on the fact that when the shit hits the fan, they want a hard bastard behind the controls that's actually steering the ship. Well, yeah, I mean, this is how, so this using, is how America... Using that as an example, look, look across to, I think, South Korea is going to also be looking very long and hard in terms of the fact that right now, a lot of their defense is based on the fact that they have U.S. troops um, uh, on their territory. What happens if the U.S. suddenly decides abruptly... Uh, to pull out from that space. By the way, so I do ten, think, times, yeah. 10 times the number of troops they had in Afghanistan. I think it's 25,000 <clears throat> troops are stationed in South Korea at the moment and have been pretty much in, in those numbers or greater ones since the end of the Korean War. Um, Afghanistan had, I think, 2,500 troops stationed there up to the moment that uh, Joe Biden started the withdrawal. So if this is how America is treating its allies, do you agree that there are many of their allies that are going to be as uncomfortable and as nervous as Canton says they are. Lord Hayne? Well, there has been a breakdown in multilateralism that was, you know, symbolized by Trump. And Trump just was America first. We've got a, that, that symbolized that. And Biden's, you know, picked up some of that baggage. Um, I'm not excusing him, but there's a bit of that in the psyche of American politics at the moment. You've, you've got a very dangerous situation where you've got China first, and you've, you've, you've referred to Taiwan. You've got um, Russia first. You've then got you know other smaller players, but quite significant in their areas like Erdogan, Turkey first, um, 
you've got Britain, Britain first, forget about our place in Europe, and, and, and that was the motivation behind Brexit. So you've, you've got a dangerous weakening of multilateralism and the international institutions that came out of the Second World War, including the United Nations Security Council, which is pretty impotent in all of this. Um, and that's what I see as the danger of where the world is going. And you've seen it close at home, and, and Africa has been, and including South Africa, a victim of this on the vaccination issue, where um, you know the richer countries, Britain at the top of the queue, has grabbed all the vaccines, and uh, instead of recognizing that none of us are safe until all of us are, are safe uh, uh, with this pandemic. So I, I think, um, or whether it's climate change, you know, you can't deal with the problems of the world uh, unless you act uh, in a concerted way, unless the international institutions of multilateralism are rescued from their impotence at the present time. So I think that's the backdrop um, to what's happened here and the way America is likely to behave, to be behaving. And Anthon made the point about uh, Israel and so on. Mm. Um, I, I think that's the backdrop. Until we start putting international institutions first and realize that we're actually stronger together than on our own, even America, then I think we're going to um, you know, fa face very turbulent times. Well, thank you all three. Um, Pums, you're on mute. I think if you wanted to say something, hop back on. Oh, yeah. There we are. I, Go ahead. I was saying, I think what it does do, which is something that a lot of people haven't find it very unpalatable, and we're not talking about it, is the fact that the Taliban is now also emboldened mm. as, the, as yeah. America withdraws. So the, the things that we hated about what the Taliban were doing in Afghanistan is going to come back stronger and harder and they're emboldened, not only by historically the idea that Afghanistan is this graveyard of empires, which as Canton talks to, all the allies of America are also going to start saying these guys are weak. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I can't depend on these guys. They're going to be emboldened and the things we hated about what was happening in Afghanistan is going to become more evident. It's going to be more in Afghanistan, but also in the surrounding countries the surrounding countries well, I and that's I, I the was, scary part i was really hoping that the three of you would bring a little optimism to our thursday morning too but i, I mean i can't expect you to work miracles so oh, <laughs> how about some I'm realism quite optimistic. let's be real here i'm quite optimistic about this um uh gareth because i actually think that um and don't get me wrong i'm, I'm very firmly in favor of uh, of multilateralism but I do think that there has been a scenario for far too long where people have become complacent based specifically on their dependence on the United States. And I mm -hmm. think that those relationships need to be reevaluated and they need to be very coldly reevaluated. And they need to, and to a large extent, I can see a scenario where all of those players now turn around to the United States and say, yes, we want to return to a scenario where we're actually engaging on the basis of mutual self-interest, but there have to be rules in place that we are agreeing upon ahead of time. Mm. And we are not going to have a scenario where we're just going to assume that the U.S. is the big brother that's going to be dictating the terms of engagement. I think that's a good thing. So, yeah, let, let's treat that as optimism. 
I'm afraid at this point I'm going to have to call the, the party to an end. But, uh, Lord Hayne, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on the new book, which I encourage everybody to take a look at. It's available in good bookstores now. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yes, absolutely. It's called A Pretoria Boy, thank you. The Story of South Africa's Public Enemy Number 1, Lord Peter Hayne. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show this morning, and thank you for being part of The Burning Platform. Thank you very much for having me, and nice to meet Canton and Pumi as well. Great to see you, sir. Thank you. And Pumi, Canton, good to have a little reunion with both of you. I'm, I'm sorry that we ran out of time to talk about all the things that we needed to discuss in politics, but I thought it was a great opportunity to have um, Peter Haynes' comments on Afghanistan. And uh, let's see what happens. I mean, there's never a dull week. And Canton, uh, good luck for the upcoming birthday. Well, I hope to see you there, Gareth. Absolutely. We'll I break. mean, you are family after yeah. all. We'll, we'll, we'll break some, some COVID rules, I'm sure. <laughs> Very good. All right, everybody. Later, and guys. because you don't work for the government, you're not going to get like a, a salary doc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Very all right. good. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow at 6 o'clock, bright and early. Cheers.